If, if you are visiting with us for the first time, welcome. My name is Keith, and glad to be with you on Palm Sunday. Um, when was the date of your last eye exam? Oh, good for you. A couple weeks ago. Anybody never had one? Couple? Couple people never had an eye exam? Or more, or more than a decade ago? I really can't stand the fact that I, I wear contacts and I can't stand the fact that they make me go in every so often, like just to, my, my prescription hasn't changed in, in, since I was 16 and I have to go in for an exam every year. But I found out that you can go online and as long as you don't type in that you're from Delaware, um, so I use my parents' address, uh, you can take like this online exam and just stand far away from the computer and say that you see everything and then they renew your prescription and you can buy more contacts. So, life hack, if any of you need that, talk to me afterwards. That was not what I was supposed to say. The, um, the, massive, the massive problem with these things is that most of us often don't go to eye exams because um, we assume that we can see okay until someone tells you you can't. And it's kind of annoying because... This has not been an issue before, or at least you didn't think, until you stand in front of something, and then you're like, oh, you know, like, that's, that's what it's supposed to look like? That is not, that's not at all what I thought I was looking at. I remember when I got glasses for the first time at the age of, I was 10th grade, so whatever that was. I remember thinking, oh my gosh, you can see leaves individually. I mean, my, my eyesight was not that bad, it wasn't, but I just remember going outside with glasses on and looking around, and I saw individual leaves moving. I said, this is awesome. Like, do the rest of you get to experience this every day? It was this really, really cool moment. Um, but, uh, but, you know, there is, when you gain clarity, there is a sense of, oh my goodness, I've been missing out. And so we're going to talk about this interesting story in Mark 8. We're going to kind of dive right in in just a moment, but... Um, it involves a, uh, a botched miracle by Jesus, one of the first times we might have that. Am I making you nervous? Uh, so we're in, in Mark 8, and we've, what we've been doing, by the way, is we've been looking at the various healing stories in the Gospels, moments where Jesus heals people, usually physically, and we're looking at that through the lens of metaphor and saying, how does God want to heal us? What, what might this represent for us today and how, how God wants to make the world whole, heal it, bring, bring beauty about where there is brokenness. Uh, so we're, we're letting this speak on a larger level to us. So um, in, in this story, uh, before, before we get to this, it's actually a, a rather simple story, but, um, but there's a couple of events leading up to it that are incredibly important. And the first one happens uh, just at the beginning of chapter 8 of, of Mark, and Jesus, uh, it's, it's the feeding of the 4,000. It's like the lesser-known little brother of the feeding of the 5,000. So already... In the book of Mark, Jesus has fed 5,000 people, and, and there's all this representative stuff about how with the 12 baskets left over in the first story, it's intended to be this story of what Jesus is doing among Israel, and then this one with the 4,000 is actually a bunch of Gentiles, and it's intended to be representative of, of Jesus' work beyond Israel, but we're not going to get into that. All you need to know is that the disciples have already been through a mass feeding, and the same, the same thing happens again, and the disciples respond in the exact same way. Oh, we should, we should send these folks home. They're hungry. You know, well, let's do something about it. But what can we do? Are you serious? Like, 
We are supposed to, by the way, Mark, if you haven't heard me talk about Mark and how he, he presents the disciples, Mark's disciples are always kind of idiots. And the point is to make us feel better. It's to remind us that even the ones closest to Jesus struggled to get it. But anyways, so, so we go through this whole story, all right? And at the end of this, this feeding, the disciples, once again, reluctant to help, have a short-term memory of what Jesus can do, shocked when the nearly identical miracle happens again, all right? And at the end of that story, the Pharisees show up, and the Pharisees come, and they demand that Jesus give them a sign to prove who he is, okay? I don't know if they were there or not, but for whatever reason, they're hearing, you know, Jesus has been growing with this, this movement of healing people and, and doing miracles, and the Pharisees come, and they say, do another one. We don't know if they were hungry. We, we, they were actually trying to trap him. So they wanted probably to see him do something on the Sabbath. They're always trying to, to make Jesus do something that, that reflected poorly on his religious background so that they could say, look, see, he's outside of the Jewish faith. He's blaspheming. We can persecute him. But anyways, Jesus gets disheartened with, these, with the Pharisees, and he says, I'm not going to be your dancing monkey. So I'm not going to do it. All right? Um, you've already seen things. You know, you've, you've already seen things, but essentially they are blind to the truth of what the miracles mean. People are chasing the miracles all of a sudden, and Jesus is saying, you're sort of missing the point. I'm not doing the miracles for the miracles' sake. I'm doing the miracles to point to something bigger, to who I am, to what I ultimately came to do. And they're not getting it. And so, um, so, so that's, that's what's happening. Um, and so he leaves, whatever, the disciples... Um, he gets back with them. They, they head back across this lake, and, and we're told that, they, that the disciples, in slightly comic relief in the story, the disciples have forgotten to bring any bread along for the trip. They don't have any food. Um, they have one loaf. Some people think that the whole comment about one loaf actually means Jesus in the boat, the bread of life, and that Mark wasn't actually talking about physical bread. But either way, they don't have enough bread. And so they're worried about this. And in the midst of it, Jesus looks at him. We don't know what the disciples are thinking, but he says, hey, be careful of the yeast of Herod and the Pharisees. All right? Weird comment. Just kind of comes out of nowhere. Um, but, but anyways, um, he warns the disciples in the boat about the spirit of the Pharisees and Herod, the, the, the clinging to power, the lack of understanding of what Jesus is doing in a big way, and here's the kicker, the demand for a sign. Now, that could be, he, so he says, watch out for yeast, right? It can grow and it can, affect, it can infect any one of us. And they think he's talking about the fact that they don't have enough bread on the boat. Okay? Oh, he's ticked off at us because, like, whoever was in charge, probably Peter. Peter always screws up. So, Peter, you know, you, you should have brought more bread. Jesus is upset at us about all of this, whatever. Um, but, but what is Jesus frustrated about when he says this? When he says, um, he said, they discussed this, and he said, it's because we have no bread. And then Jesus launches into a conversation in just a moment, and he starts grilling them and saying, yo, he asks them nine questions in a row. The only time Jesus does anything like this is like, like true frustration. And we don't know, does Jesus' I'll, I'll put it up in just a second, but does Jesus' frustration flow from the fact that maybe he thought the disciples knew they didn't have enough bread, and they were just like, well, we've seen what Jesus can do, so we're just going to count on him for a miracle. And he's like, that's just what the Pharisees were trying to do. This is not what I came for. Or was it the total opposite of the spectrum? Like, I've been with you all this time. Do you really think we're not going to have enough? 
Are you still not understanding? You are with me. That's all you need right now. Are you really worried in the midst of all that you've seen? Are you really worried? You're just not getting it. So, so he launches into all of these questions. So why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? And then he starts quizzing. When I, asked, when I did these things, do you remember how much you had left over? How many basketfuls of pieces? Twelve, they say. Um, he just continues to go. And then he says, when I broke the loaves, how many basketfuls did you pick up? Seven. Okay, he said, do you still not understand? He leaves them with that question. Do you still not understand? Uh, you know what I really like? The, the original language of this is, do you not yet understand? And so we should just pause in the midst of Jesus' frustration that instead of saying, do you not understand, Jesus looks at him and he says, do you not yet understand? Now, for those of us who sometimes have trouble grasping the way of Jesus, this is incredibly hopeful because that word yet or still just hints at something. And it hints at the fact that Jesus is still on a journey with them, <laughs> that maybe there is a something on the other side of not yet. <laughs> do you still not understand? Do you not yet understand? And hopefully we see the open door for, I want you to eventually understand, but you don't yet. Oh my. So this is the story, and it carries on, and it's really important that that's all of the lead up to what we get happening. Um, and so what, what ends up happening is... Um, after he grills them with all these questions, we get this really, really odd short story, okay? Uh, so the last question that we're left with is that, do you still not understand? And then we find out this in, uh, in the next verse. They came to Bethsaida, and some, of, some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him, all right? Uh, there we go. Um, and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? And here we go. He looked up and he said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. So right now we're back to the fuzzy board. So Jesus, this guy comes and he's blind. And Jesus botches the miracle for the first time in the Gospels. You can probably tell I don't think Jesus botched the miracle. But it's the only time that we get that something doesn't take on the first shot. I mean, Jesus has done powerful miracles up to this point. Then this, this blind man is brought to him. And he tells, there's so much in here. We're not going to talk about the, the spit concept. There's all kinds of cool cultural stuff, but it's just not where we're going today. But anyways, um, he looks up and he says, well, I, I see, I mean, I, I see some, I see something. Yes, am I, I think, I see, I see. But I, People, they're walking and looking a little bit like, like trees. You know, like, is this the first time? Is, the guy, is, is that what people look like? I don't know. I've been blind my whole life. Or was he, did he have sight as a child? Um, anyways, here's what I can imagine. Oh, the story's not done. <laughs> here's what happens. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, don't even go to the village. All right. So that's our story. <sighs> I don't think Jesus messed up. What I can imagine, though, what I can imagine, and we're just, this is conjecture, okay? Don't put me on a stake and try to burn me. But I imagine that in this, in this story, 
Jesus brings this guy close and maybe just maybe (laughs) whispers in his ear, hey, we're going to get where we need to get. Just work with me here. I need to do something. Um, I I don't know, right? But I need to make a point, friend. Just be patient. Give me a couple extra seconds on this. And, And so Jesus... The guy declares, okay, I see people, but not, not very clearly. And just imagine, you know those, you know those uh, I don't know, the TikTok videos where people do something, and then there's that guy who does the same thing much more easily and then just goes, you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah he's famous. I just, I can't remember his name. Um, yeah, so I just kind of, once again, imagine Jesus doing the partial sight healing and the guy saying, I can't see fully, and Jesus doing it again, and then him saying, I can see clearly, and Jesus looking at his disciples and being like, (laughs) the disciples have been having a problem with partial sight. The entire section of the book of Mark, right here, is about the disciples seeing kind of but not fully. The moment after this, this story happens. The disciples are going on their way and Jesus quizzes them. He says, who do people say I am? And they say, well, some, most, most people are saying you're a prophet, you know, of some sort. He said, okay, who do you say that I am? And Peter pipes up and he has a moment of seeing and he says, you're the, you're the Messiah. Amazing. Sight, right? Sight. It's this beautiful moment. It's like finally a disciple gets it. And then a few verses later, Jesus starts talking about how the Son of Man is going to be persecuted by the religious leaders, and he eventually is going to be killed. And in three days, he's going to rise again. And Peter pulls him aside and says, yo, this is not the kind of Messiah talk we need right now. And this is when Jesus' famous line, hey, Get behind me, you're acting like Satan. You're acting like the accuser right now. You don't know the things of God. We're back to partial sight. (laughs) He gets a moment of clarity, but he doesn't understand what the Messiah is supposed to be all about. And so so you get this image where Jesus does a multiple-touch healing, a multiple-touch sight restoration, and he is doing it. He tells the guy, don't don't even go into the village. Kind of like, listen, like just, just carry on. This, this miracle, it was, it was for you, <laughs> and it was for these guys to see. Don't even go to the village. This is not about hubbub. This is not about, I don't want more attention about this. The disciples are struggling with understanding the nature of the kingdom, even though they do see Jesus in some way for who he is, but not in fullness. And so this whole image is over and over, understanding, but not understanding. Just like that, we're back to the blind man. And so it brings up several things in us today as we walk, um, as we seek to walk as Jesus' people. One of the things is uh, (laughs) we often think that we see clearly and everybody else doesn't. Like this is one of the great temptations and one of the great downfalls to actually feeling like God gives you clarity. Is that you immediately know that nobody else has it. Like, I'm glad, I just, I just want to tell you, friends, I'm so glad that at LifePath that we have just figured out how to do and be the church. 
Like, after so many millennia, isn't it great that one church has finally gotten it right? I'm just like, how lucky are, are all of us to be a part of the one faithful church? It's just amazing. Okay, if you don't know me yet, I really don't want you to walk away thinking that I'm not being highly sarcastic. But, like, but this idea, right, as we grow... There is this ongoing temptation as we grow in our own faith and knowledge. There's this ongoing temptation to think that now we've got clarity and nobody else does. And here's the thing. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. If you go around thinking that, you're going to become a jerk for Jesus. So we can't do that. So, so the, the temptation when we look at a, a, a multiple healing is to think that we're the ones on the other side of that second touch. That's, that's the temptation. Another thing that we see in the story is that we need Jesus' ongoing touch and leadership to help us see more clearly over and over again. The disciples already were trusting and following Jesus, but they needed to see this image because Jesus needed to help them see, you, you haven't really grasped it, not the nature of the kingdom, not yet. And again and again, Jesus is going to challenge our sights and our assumptions, and Jesus is going to lead us into this upside-down kingdom over and over again throughout our entire lives. This healing story that we get is sandwiched perfectly between moments that highlight our ongoing need to see more clearly and how we often only get partial sight in the, in the, in the whole journey of God's ongoing redemptive work in the world. Mark loves this theme, this theme of the hidden kingdom of Jesus that the disciples can't quite wrap their minds around. And it culminates in this weekend. So this is why we're talking about this healing on this day. So this is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, historically, is the day that we celebrate Jesus entering Jerusalem at the beginning of the week that he would be killed. Okay? So the multiple Gospels share this story, and you probably know it. Jesus comes into town, and different, different details are in different Gospels. Um, but there's, there's throwing coats on the ground, which was what was done to, um, to welcome and prepare a king for returning home or um, from conquest of some sort. People would throw coats down on the ground for the, them to walk over or their horses to walk over as a sign of honor. Palm branches were cut off in this moment and waved. The palm branch was a sign of military victory that was actually imprinted on the Jewish coinage at the time. Because of um, the Maccabean revolt, Judah, Judas the Maccabean, also known as the Hammer, 70 years earlier, had led a, a revolt that was partially successful, and one of his symbols of war was this, was the palm branch. So you get Jesus, who the word on the street is, this is the Messiah, this is the, this is the, the one we've been waiting for, who is going to bring revolution. And people begin to give him the symbols of kingship and conquering. And they start waving branches and celebrating Jesus as king, which, by the way, is right and true. But partial sight. Yeah? So the images, and, and here's, here's what's fascinating. Let's, let's just talk about this just a little bit. Oh, by the way, they're shouting Hosanna as he comes, which means save, we pray. Rescue us, Hosanna, the one who will save. And salvation, we think of salvation often as this super disembodied, like eventually like floating around in heaven. The salvation that the Jewish people were talking about was a salvation from Roman oppression. 
that would happen through a political overthrow, okay? So anyways, you want to hear what's really cool? Because most of you have heard that part of the story, and if you've been around a life path, you've heard the next part. But what's happening on this exact same weekend, on the week that Passover begins, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, okay? This is also super important. So the way he comes in is riding on a donkey, all right? With people shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Less well-known is the historical fact that a Roman imperial procession was also entering Jerusalem from the opposite side of the city. Pilate had a home on the coast in Caesarea, and he would take all of his military might, and he would march a processional on the opposite side of Jerusalem every Holy Week or every Passover week because the threat of rebellion was higher among the Jewish people in Jerusalem during their Holy Week. There was a cha- all these Jews you know, came to, to, the, to the temple, to Jerusalem. So there's this influx of people who are angry about occupation. So Pilate, the governor, he comes in riding on his war horse with this huge entourage to remind people where real power is. Don't, don't get too excited. Don't get too rowdy. We will squash you. It was a sign of military might. It was intended to be noticed by everyone. So as this is happening on one side of the city, we have another procession happening on the other side. And Jesus, victoriously riding on a donkey, right? And it's not just that the donkey was never used in war and was a humble creature. It's also that this whole story harkens back to a passage in Zechariah. Sing aloud, daughter Jerusalem, look, your king will come to you. By the way, this kind of stuff, I, I have to admit, it kind of gives me chills. Daughter Jerusalem, your king will come to you. He is righteous and victorious. Very king stuff. Very kingly. He is humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the offspring of a donkey. Hmm. That's not very kingly. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The bow used in battle will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations. Well, there is no king like that. There is no king that comes to speak shalom to the nations. And Jesus embodies this story in in the book of Luke. I think it's chapter 18 or 19, wherever they tell the story. Um, Jesus stops at the top overlooking Jerusalem on his way in, and he starts weeping. Because, Jerusalem, you people don't know the things that make for peace, for wholeness, for shalom. You don't get it. Jesus, in the midst of being celebrated as king, people finally see him as the Messiah that who, for who he is, stops and pauses because there's only partial sight. Because they think he's going to be the kind of king that Pilate was. Or the kind of king that Herod would be just in the right way. Right? We all love that. We all love thinking that whoever we think should be king is going to be the king in the right way. But there is a nature of power over and dominance that Jesus never plays into. And so there's no political systems of the world that play into it. So it turns everything upside down. All right? So, so there's celebration, sight, great. Jesus is Lord, but there's misunderstanding about what it means. There's revolution. Yes, Jesus came to turn the world over, to flip it all upside down, but without the expectation of shedding enemy blood to get there. There's kingship, but without the reality of political domination from above. There's freedom. Oh, yes. They are celebrating freedom, as they should, but partial sight, 
because to the people celebrating and waving those palm branches, it was freedom for our people, for our generation, for our liberation. And Jesus said, I came for it all. I came to set people free from the very bondage of sin and from oppression and from hatred and from violence and from the cycles that humans use to push each other down instead of build a more beautiful world now and forever that I'm working on. So Jesus has come to do so much more and do it in a way that they have never seen. He is the misunderstood king of the upside-down kingdom. And no one gets the donkey. They just don't get it. So Jesus weeps. And Jesus says, man, I thought that, I thought that whole partial sight healing thing a few days ago was going to help. <laughs> Apparently there's another touch needed, right? And another, and another. Um, today we celebrate Jesus entering Jerusalem as king, rightly. But we acknowledge that we might not always be seeing clearly even so. We acknowledge and, and, and should be challenged on Palm Sunday to notice how we think we get it, but our sight is likely still fuzzy. Disciples of Jesus are a people in process, friends. We are a people in process forever. We are constantly asking, learning, exploring as we move toward Jesus. Each day is an opportunity to have our sight adjusted. Just one more time. We never arrive. You and I, we will always have blind spots. If we don't acknowledge that, we will become the kind of people that harm others deeply. But we invite Jesus constantly to reset our expectations of him and our understanding of the kingdom, right? Which, by the way, are often not influenced by Jesus himself, but by a distinctly American version of Christianity. By the fact that we're used to churches that look like slick businesses. By our political allegiances. By our shared dislike of certain groups of people. And don't worry, no matter where you're at, you can find a shared dislike of certain groups of people, even if it's righteous indignation, of our obsession with looking and appearing religious and holy externally with all of our practices and everything on the outside. So we, we take... I think my daughter stole my cross during worship. Um, we take our crosses, right... We take the things, I can probably do this even while I talk to you. We take our crosses and we fold them because we remind ourselves this thing's too pointed. Just hold it up, brother. Jose, hold it up. There we go. Thanks. There's the cross. You've seen it. Um, and by the way, you can just take one sometime today. They're on the back. So we take what was used to celebrate, right? And we fold them into crosses as a reminder that the king of the world is also its servant. As a reminder, we choose to remember that the way of God is sacrificial love, not superiority and control. We choose to remember that today the kingdom of God shatters our expectations, that success does not mean what we think it does, that power and fanfare are not lasting, that bloodshed will never create true peace. Uh, that saving your life often looks like losing it. That an all-powerful God sometimes weeps. Jesus did not come to prove himself with miracles or to take over political power or to give us easy and comfortable lives. 
Uh, Jesus came to shake the world on its head and to create a place where everyone and everything can be redeemed through grace and love and mercy and forgiveness. And he did it through humility and selflessness, power that looked like weakness and defeat. Yet it set the world on fire even so. It looked nothing like the disciples expected. And in order for the movement to work, it would take a bunch of disciples that were willing to constantly seek him for renewed eyesight. We are the latest generation in the history of people seeking clarity from Jesus. But it started a long time ago, and the church will lose its integrity if we don't continue that tradition. Um, we constantly need to see and hear the good news again more clearly, more clearly, more clearly as we move toward Jesus forever. So, um, yeah, so we invite Jesus to help fix our eyesight today, over and over. In the, even in the little moments, this is, you know, this very dramatic story, right? The, the, the healing of someone getting sight. But for us, it often happens in the little aha moments of seeing others with the eyes of Jesus, right? Of releasing our need for control, um, or to control others, or our own lives, of learning how good the way of Jesus is, how it's possible to live with this hope and authenticity, um, grounded in the leadership of Jesus. I long for clarity. I, I trust that you do too. Um, but together, let's know it's going to be a lifelong process um, to see the radical kingdom that Jesus came to, uh, to declare and show us. This is the right week to lean into that radicalness. Um, so Lord, be with us on our journey. Touch our eyes again and again. Amen.